Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Consider this. The scripture says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is therefore profitable for teaching, for training, for reproof, for correction, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if that's true, then, then we should give our attention to knowing God's word as best we can. So let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we left off. Verse 23 is where we'll pick up this morning. If you're joining us, with us for the first time today, we've been through a long journey of this glorious New Testament letter called Hebrews. And we find ourselves in the middle of one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. I think the point of Hebrews 11 is to encourage Christians who were considering retreating on their faith because of maybe their own laziness, maybe because of persecution in the first century in Rome. They were considering going back. And the point of Hebrews is to not go back, to hold on to Jesus because he's better. And Hebrews chapter 11, the point of this chapter, is to give us examples of people who've gone before us and how they've held on, and so should we. And so this morning, we're right in the middle of this beautiful encouragement, and I think we have five examples in verses 23 through 31 of enduring in faith by seeing him who is invisible. Five examples, and I'm going to work our way through it, and then we're going to see two New members of Crosspoint be baptized, and we're going to revel in the gospel, and then we'll conclude. Now, my plan is to just work through this text, and I've, I've given you an outline, which is basically the passage. So we're going to look at these five examples. Moses' faith, then we're going to look at Passover faith, and Red Sea faith, and Jericho faith, and then Rahab's faith. And we're just going to take it verse upon Verse. Before I read the passage and explain it as we go, let me ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for beautiful January morning. Thank you for this group of people, this church that you've assembled in this moment today. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it, the scriptures say. May you meet us in your word. May you encourage us, Lord. We need We need the encouragement that this passage gives us. We need to see Jesus. We don't need to just get through a church service or judge a sermon or think about good songs. We need need the Spirit to meet us in the Word today. That's what we need, Lord, all of us. So help us, I pray, and help me in any way that you see fit to be part of that as I try and explain this faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read verses 23 through 27, which I think gives us a picture of Moses' faith as the author intends for us to be encouraged by it. So he says, Hebrews 11, verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, Because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Well, let's pause there before we work through the rest of the text and just consider Moses' faith for a moment. Actually, before we look at Moses' faith, I want us to just think about verse 23, the, the faith of Moses' parents. It says in verse 23 that Moses, many of us are familiar with the story. So what's happening in, in this particular timeline, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's referencing this time in Israel's history where they have, it's the end of Genesis, it's the beginning of Exodus, and God's people have gone from being rescued by Joseph, this great patriarch at the end, this great grandson of Abraham at the end of Genesis in Egypt, where he becomes the the governor of Egypt. And now several generations have gone by and the Pharaoh has forgotten Uh, about the people of God. He's forgotten the goodness of God. And so now Israel goes from being uh, honored guests to captives in in Egypt. And uh, Joseph has died and God's people are in slavery. They're in captivity in Egypt. And God raises up this, he's about to raise up this rescuer, this deliverer named Moses. And we read in Exodus chapter 2, the beginning of Moses' life, what's happened is the Pharaoh knows that Israel is growing and there's, there's, there's many Israelites and he's starting to fear the Israelites. And so he issues this edict to say that every, every male child born to a, to a Hebrew woman, an Israelite, is to be slain. And that's reminiscent really of what happens in the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. And it's, it's this picture of how Satan, the forces of evil, hate the offspring of woman. They hate children. And we see that in our culture today. The enemy, the spiritual forces of wickedness, hate children. And here we see Moses in his early part of his life. He's born, and and verse 23 basically says that his parents, in an act of faith, they they hide Moses, and they hide him, and they put Moses' mother puts him in a basket, and the sister spies it out, and then in God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter gets the basket, and she raises Moses as her own child and actually hires Moses' mom to be his, his, his servant. And so Moses grows up with his Hebrew mom nursing him and as his nanny, so to speak, in the, the, the house of Pharaoh and in God's wonderful stroke of providence. But notice here that, that Moses' parents refused the edict of the king that was going to kill these children. And here's just a beautiful picture of these parents. And I just, I just want to make a little aside here. I don't think this is a major part of the chapter, but Satan still hates the people of God. He still hates the children of God. And part of the role of parents in modern America and 21st century in the church today is to guard our children from the hatred of the enemy. Satan wants to destroy our children. And may he raise up parents like Moses's who are willing to defy the king's edict and say, no, you cannot have my children. We could, we, could, we could do a whole lot on that, but let me move along. Verse 24, it says, Moses grew up and he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so what's going on here, midway through Exodus chapter 2, is just a very quick summary of Moses' early life. He grows up. He's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. His mom becomes his nanny. His biological Hebrew mom becomes his nanny. He grows up as this, this son, this adopted son of Pharaoh in this incredible luxury. He's raised. Think about what's going on in his life. His Hebrew mom is raising him in the, par- the palace of Pharaoh, and he grows up in all of this privilege. And there's this scene in Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 2, that is pivotal, pivotal in Moses' life. He knows that he's a Hebrew. He's been raised by his Hebrew mom, but he has all the privileges of Egypt. And he's out one day, and he sees this Egyptian beating this Hebrew slave and kills this Hebrew slave. And he actually, Moses goes to defend this Hebrew because Moses, with this identity, knowing that he's one of God's people, but being raised as Pharaoh's adopted son, is outraged when he sees this Egyptian beating this this Jewish slave, this Hebrew slave. And Moses goes and he kills this Egyptian who is beating the Hebrew slave. And so there's this thing, there's this moment of decision where Moses decides It's pivotal in his life, and he knows now that he's sort of crossed the line of departure, and God still hasn't called him out yet, but there's something going on in Moses, and he's fearing now being, he's fearing the consequences of his action, and he flees Egypt, and he goes to Midian, and eventually God speaks to him at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and hears the outcries of his people, and raises up Moses to be this deliverer. But notice how the author of Hebrews is using this scene in Moses' life to encourage the first century Hebrews and by extension us today. He's saying there came a point in Moses' life where he refused to go along with the fallen culture that he was a part of and he stood up and he rejected it and he chose rather to side with God. Imagine what's going on in the lives of these Hebrews in the first century as they're being tempted to go back to Judaism. They're being tempted to go back to what is comfortable. They're being tempted because of the persecution that they were feeling for being Christians. And they were just tempted to go back to a life of more relative ease. And how is the author of Hebrews using this scene in Moses' life? He's saying, remember Moses. And by faith, Moses chose at this pivotal moment in his life to say no to the world and yes to obedience to God. That's the point. That's what he's using here, and he's, he's encouraging him. He's encouraging the, the, right, the, the Hebrews to be like Moses. But notice how Moses stood up. Notice this pivotal moment in Moses' life. How did he say yes to God and no to Egypt? Yes to obedience and no to the world. It says that he, he looked for the reward. Verse 26, he was looking to the reward. And he endured, verse 27, as seeing him who is invisible. So there's this, this, this is the definition of faith at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11. Our author's telling us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
And the author is using Moses as an example of somebody who made a decision, who said no to temporary ease and temporary pleasure. He calls it the fleeting pleasures of sin, so that he would say yes to obedience to God with the basis of the motivation that God would reward him greatly in the future. In other words, Moses said yes to the temporary comforts of now so that he could say yes to the greater reward of God in the future. And God is using that. The Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews, is using that in the lives of these first century Christians, and he's using it in ours. The point for us today is that to be a Christian in this fallen culture, we live in a kind of modern-day Egypt where it's so easy to just enjoy the passing, fleeting pleasures of of comfort, and there's nothing wrong in particular with comfort and modern life, but when it sucks you into its drain, when it, when it pulls you away from God, when, when that becomes the thing, when the reward is only here and now, when it's just easy to just kind of go along with the flow, this word, which was written to these first century Christians, now speaks to us today as well that we, like Moses, must say yes to God. And at times, there comes a point in all of our lives where all of us will have to stand up to the world. Whether it's a platoon that you're in in the army and it's a commander or a platoon sergeant that's telling you to do something that you know is wrong, whether it's a school system that's telling you to teach something that you know is contrary to God's design, whether it is a doctor that is telling you is recommending a procedure that you know is contrary to God's design for humanity, whether it is a group of friends, whatever, whatever it is, whether it's some residue of sin in you that tempts you to just give yourself into some sort of counterfeit pleasure, to just sort of escape into that thing for a moment so that you can kind of feel good for you, about yourself in some time of failure in your life, and you just sort of give yourself over to some habit that you know is destructive just for some moment of pleasure, there comes a moment where we all must stand up to the world outside of us and the world inside of us and say that it's worth it to obey God, to endure as seeing him who I cannot see and trust God for the future. That's how this example of Moses is being used in the life of of God's people. So really, the point of these passages is to be like Moses. Be like Moses. Don't live for right now. Don't live for fleeting pleasures that will only destroy you. Don't don't live for fleeting comforts. Live for the greater reward. And he keeps on going, verse 28. And he now shifts from Moses uh, to a couple scenes, and Moses is involved, obviously, but a couple scenes in the life of Israel. And he says, by faith, verse 28, this is now Passover faith. By faith, he, speaking of Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So what's happened? We've now fast-forwarded from the beginning of Exodus all the way to Exodus chapter 12, God has raised up Moses. Moses has come back. He fl- remember, he fled Egypt because he killed that Egyptian who was beating the slave, and he feared the consequences of Pharaoh. 
And so he ran away to Midian. He ends up marrying a woman. God calls him, burning bush. God calls him to go back and be the deliverer for his people. God comes back. God calls him and he says, go to Pharaoh, this man who raised you, who took you in. Can you imagine the courage that that took? He calls Moses to go back to Pharaoh and to show up on his doorstep and basically say, let my people go. And God tells Moses that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't do it, but just trust me, I'm going to work through you. And so in these early chapters of Exodus, God uses Moses to bring about this command, this call to Pharaoh to let God's people go. We know the story. Pharaoh doesn't do that. So through Moses' hand, God brings these plagues, these ten plagues on Egypt, these incredible, miraculous events. And none of them finally work until we get to this tenth plague where we read about in Exodus chapter 12 where God tells Moses, listen, I'm going to, I want you to, I'll read it here in just a second, but I'm going to, I'm going to kill all of the firstborn children in the land whose, whose doorpost is not covered by the blood. And so we see a picture of this Passover faith. So let me read Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13 or so. This is, this is one of the most important portions. This is, in a sense, you can think of this as the cross. This is the cross of the Old Testament. This is the foreshadowing of the cross of the Old Testament. I want you to make these connections. Be thinking about Jesus, the spotless lamb on the cross in the New Testament, and then be thinking about this scene that I'm going to read about in Exodus chapter 12 and make the connections. Make this see chapter 12 of Exodus as a shadow of what will happen on the cross in Jesus's life. So it says here in Exodus 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you. So what's happened is we've had all these other plagues. They haven't worked. Pharaoh's still obstinate. And finally now, God is going to bring death to any child in the land whose doorpost is not covered by the blood. Verse 2, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. When you hear that word lamb, think about John and John chapter 1, where John sees Jesus and he says, Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 4, back to Exodus 12. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for that lamb. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Listen to verse 7 now. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains is until the morning, until the morning you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. Listen to this. Let's put ourselves in this scene. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, 
and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the phrase, pass over. I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And that's exactly what Moses and Israel do. They put the blood of the, the lamb without blemish on the doorposts of their heart, of their, of their doors. And the angel of death passes over and spares those. The imagery is so obvious but so rich. Spares those that are covered with the blood. And so what is the author of Hebrews doing here? Think about the context of what's going on in Hebrews. These people in Hebrews, in Rome in the first century, were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. They were tempted to go back to ease. They were tempted to make it easy on themselves because they were being persecuted for trusting in the Messiah that was the fulfillment of all of the law that would come after this Passover event that we see in the Promised Land and the rest of Exodus. And all this law of God, which sometimes is confusing to us as New Testament Christians, had the purpose of displaying the holiness of God, the neediness and the sinfulness of man, and the hope to come and all of these sacrifices, which this Passover is a kind of first expression of sacrifice that is pointing to the need that we can't be covered by our righteousness, by our deeds, by our works, but only by something that God does on the cross. And so these first century Christians are tempted to go back to relying on themselves, and the author of Hebrews is using this, the cross of the Old Testament, to say, hold on to Jesus. Your only hope is that the blood of the Lamb covers you. The point is, keep your faith in the good news of what Jesus has done for you. And the point here that he's using is, is that Moses and the Israelites did this. They trusted in what God told them to do. They trusted in the deliverance that God would bring even before he brought it because they trusted his word. They saw him who was invisible and they trusted God and they said what he, they did what he told them to do and God came through. And so... Again, I keep saying this, but I want you to see this because we need to connect it. See how the Bible is using the logic of the Bible that comes before it in the lives of the people it is writing to at the moment and now us. This is an example, an exhortation to say part of the Christian life is trusting and applying and believing that God is who he says he is even though you cannot see him. So do this thing even though you're not sure whether or not it's going to completely come through as you hope. God is worthy of your trust. And ultimately, this, this cross, this scene in the Old Testament is, is an example of the whole 
message of the Bible itself that God will cover you from his own wrath by the blood of his son Jesus. So don't give up on Jesus is the point of verse 28. That's Passover faith. Now he goes into Red Sea faith, verse 29. He's going from these grand, I mean, he's, he's sort of like doing a flyover of the narrative of the Old Testament and drawing out these incredible examples. I mean, Abraham, then Moses, and now the Passover, and now the Red Sea. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And so now he's pointing, again, his first century audience to the faith. This is really important. Verse 29 is, there, there's, verse 29 is gold. He's pointing the people in first century Rome who were facing persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire to the faith of their ancestors generations before, after the Passover, after the plagues, they've left Egypt Pharaoh said, okay, get out of here, go. And now they leave Egypt, and now they're wandering in the wilderness moments after that, days after that, at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh has a change of mind, and he says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase God's people. And so now the armies, after Pharaoh has told them that they could go, chases Israel, and now they're pinned. They've got the, the, the armies of Egypt on one side, and they've got the Red Sea on the other. And now verse 29 is saying, by faith, the people of God crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. And he's pointing them, he's pointing his audience and us to the faith of Egypt at the bank, the, 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 the shore of the Red Sea with Egypt's army behind them. And so we might think, this is really important, we might think, yeah, we need to be like Israel who was strong and who believed God without any doubt. We need to be like that. And look what Israel did. But, oh, that's not quite how the story actually unfolded in real time. So let's read Exodus chapter 14. In fact, this is really funny. When you, read, um, when you read liberal theologians who are actually not theologians at all, they're just liberal scholars, they actually, this is funny, they critique Hebrews because they almost like accuse the writer of Hebrews like, man, his description of Israel at the Red Sea is so out of touch with what Israel was like at the Red Sea they actually use it to discredit the divinity, I mean, the, 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 the inspiration of Hebrews. And they say, what, what, they, they discredit the author of Hebrews, okay? But let's figure out what's going on here. Exodus chapter 14, let me read this. Exodus 14, Israel's at the Red Sea. And the, remember what the author of Hebrews is doing? He's saying, be like Israel at the Red Sea. By faith, they did this. But let's read the description. Hebrews, Hebrews, uh, Exodus 14, verse 10. Okay, so... Pharaoh has chased them after he let them go. They're at the banks of the Red Sea. Verse 10, Exodus 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. Listen to this. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it... Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out to Egypt? 
Now, hold on now. (laughs) This is a people who've seen the ten plagues come through Moses' hand. In the span of it, it seems like a couple of days, they've, they've, they've killed these lambs. They've put the blood on their doorposts. God did what he said he would do. They wake up in the morning. There's wailing in the city because all of the Egyptian children are dead, but theirs are not because God passed over them. Pharaoh says, get out of here. And they go. And now they're facing another obstacle. And they throw up their hands in despair. And they say, come on, Moses. Couldn't you have just buried us in Egypt? Verse 12. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And listen. The author of Hebrews is using this as an example in a, in a positive way. And he's saying, be like, be like Israel at the banks of the Red Sea, who by faith crossed over. Let's keep reading. And Moses, verse 13, said to the people, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Verse 14, if you're a highlighter or an underliner, verse 14 is right up your alley. The Lord, come on, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. We won't take the time to read the rest of the chapter, but Moses sticks the staff in the ground. The waters open up, God's people walk across, they get on the other side, Egypt's army follows, and the waters come crashing, and the waters that were deliverance for Israel are wrath and judgment for Egypt. Amen and amen. But here's what's interesting, back to our main text, what is the author of Hebrews doing? Why? is he bringing up an example that when we read behind the curtain doesn't seem like that courageous of an example. Because God knows as he's inspiring the writer of Hebrews that this is the Christian experience. This is how faith is. Faith is not when we look at ourselves or look at our past and say, I've got what it takes I can do this. He's not saying look at Israel in their strength. He's saying look at these people who had trembling hands and wobbling knees, but they obeyed God. They endured as seeing him who is invisible despite their fear. That's faith. So the point of Israel at the Red Sea is not reach down deep inside and Strap up your boots and be tough. But the point of the encouragement of Hebrews 11 verse 29 is that God is gracious to doubting weak people and keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. Understand what this is saying about faith. 
It's not based on bare human courage, but acting despite your fear on the goodness of God, enduring him who is invisible, and trusting that he has something better for you. That's the point of verse 29. That even those of us that seem weak, we're, our hands are shaking, that if we keep pressing on, God is gracious to us. In fact, God is glorified in us when our trembling hands grab hold of him despite our fear, because then we show that the power is from God and not from us. And just, by the way, before we move on, because i gotta, I got to land this plane so we can see these folks baptized, just note the graciousness of God and the way he describes his people. Come on, we've looked at Abraham. Remember how he describes Abraham? Abraham, Paul says in Romans and here in in, uh, Hebrews 11, he talks about Abraham so graciously. He did not waver considering the faith. Well, actually, when I read Genesis, it kind of seems like he did. And then when he describes Sarah... He says that Sarah, fully convinced that God could bring a child to her barren womb. Well, wait a minute, author of Hebrews. When I read Genesis chapter 16, it kind of seems like Sarah came up with this scheme with Hagar that kind of messed things up and we're still dealing with it today. What are you talking about? Or maybe, so, so we've got some options here. Either the New Testament Bible writers didn't read the Old Testament, which I think is unlikely. <laughs> Or they're wrong, which is even more unlikely. Or, or, God is so gracious in his disposition when he recounts his people and his work in his people that when he looks on them in their past, he is gracious. He loves them and he sees mercies that are new and he takes imperfect people and he uses them from the past to be examples to his imperfect people now. And he says, hold on, hold on. They did it. You can too. Come on. That's the beauty of grace. Grace, grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. You know, I I think about this sometimes. It's like a dad giving a speech at a rehearsal dinner. And his son's getting married, and he knows his son. He knows his son was a complete knucklehead when he was 15. He knows it. He does. He knows. He knows. Come on. But that... That dad doesn't get up and say, let me tell you about this boy. Despite everything that he knows about the failings of his son, he gets up and he says, this this is my boy. This is my boy. This is my son and I love him. He is my son in whom I am well pleased. When God looks at Abraham, he doesn't get up and show us in the New Testament, this knucklehead. Can you believe this guy? Sarah? Israel? These, these clowns at the red. No, he says, he points to their trembling hands and their wobbling knees. And he says, be like them, be like them. They did it. I was strong in them. I'm strong in you. Hold on. Don't give in. Keep trusting. Obey. Endure him who you do not see because your reward will be great. That, that, that'll put steel in your spine, friends. God is gracious. God is gracious to his weak people. Let's keep going. Verse 30. Now they're at the, it's just example upon example. It's like just these beautiful waves of mercy hitting us, saying, God, God, you can do it. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So now Israel has 
They're in the promised land. We're now in the book of Joshua. Uh, this, is, this is beautiful. They make it into the promised land. Moses has died. They've grumbled against Moses. I mean, gosh, we just skipped through a whole bunch of sanctification in the desert, and Israel's still going back and being just a bunch of hard-to-handle people. And now Moses has died. Joshua's raised up. Joshua leads them in a kind of mini recreation of the water parting again, this time not the Red Sea, but this time the River Jordan, and they pass through. Now they're finally in the promised land, and still they've got some work to do. So salvation isn't the end of the Christian story. Now we're in the promised land. We're with the Lord, but we've got to work. We've got to, we've got to root out all of the sin in the land, all of the foreigners in the land, which is a picture of sanctification. Even though we're saved, we still got to root out sin. And now they go, and they're, they're about to tackle, they're about to take Jericho, this city. And it's fortified. Verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. We don't have the time, but there's this beautiful story in Joshua chapter 5 and 6. Where God, I mean, it's just, it's so, it's so unbelievable, it's just so nonsensical, it's so unpragmatic that it has to be the Lord. Jericho's fortified, the people of Jericho, these, these, these Gentiles in the land, they're fortified knowing that the Israelites are coming, they're, 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 they're fortified up and God doesn't tell them to come up with some wonderful World War II plan. He says, walk around the city. For six days, don't say a word, <laughs> and then on the seventh day, walk around it, and after the, the leaders blow the shofar, the horns, then shout, and I'm going to cause the walls to fall down, and I'm going to give the city to you. And can you imagine, and we read that, it's in the span of just a couple verses in, Genesis, in Joshua chapter 6, can you imagine day one? They do it day two, three. Can you imagine they're back in camp murmuring? Is this, man, should we do it again day four? Day four, day five, day six, day seven. The leaders blow the horn. The people shout. The walls fall. God gives Jericho into the hands of his people. What, how? We could, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about just that scene, but, but just for the purposes of today and for the purposes of time, how is the author of Hebrews using that incredible scene in the Old Testament? He's saying, listen, trust God. There's going to be moments of sort of quiet obedience in your life where you have to obey over the course of time. It's not just a one-hit thing, but you're going to have to keep obeying every step of the way, trusting God. Look to him who you cannot see. Your reward is coming. So, so what's the, how are we to appropriate these Old Testament things into our life? See, this is the error of, of many, I think, uh, uh, maybe sincere, but just wrong Christians who, who, who appropriate the Old Testament in a wrong way, in, in a kind of prosperity sort of way. The point is not, when we look at the Red Sea or when we look at Jericho, that God's going to kill your enemies or he's going to bring down the walls of everything that opposes you in this life. That's not the point. The application for us in the New Covenant is not meant to be immediate and temporal. Do you see that? But these Old Testament scenes in the life of Israel 
are meant to be pictures of the enduring eternal reality. See, our biggest problem is not Egyptians here and now or, or not some foreign government here and now or not some immediate earthly captor. It's the captor of sin and God has come to finally fully rescue us and pass over us. Our biggest issue is his judgment and eternity either with Christ or apart from Christ. And so he's saying, hold on, don't give in to the world. And our biggest issue is not some army or some enemy or some sort of earthly foe behind us and some Red Sea, some miracle that we need in a temporary sense to happen for us. But it's a picture of, of, of the Christian life and eternity. He's saying God will bring you all the way through to the promised land, which isn't retirement, which isn't these 80 years. It's eternity with Christ forever. And there will be opposition and God will, there will be fortifications in your life, but God will not let anything stop you fully and finally from being fully glorified, free from sin on that day. So endure as, endure as seeing him who you cannot see. That's how we appropriate these things into our lives. Not by praying a certain amount of prayers or giving a certain amount of money and God will somehow release something in, in these decades of our lives. That's not it, friends. It's a picture of enduring faith. And then finally, let me end on verse 31. Verse 31, goodness, I gotta, I gotta ramp this up because verse 31 has got some juice in it. And I'm gonna try and squeeze it as quick and fast as I can. Rahab's faith. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish. <laughs> with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. So what's going on there? Well, verse 30 talks about the fall of the walls of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. Verse 31 is taking us back to Joshua chapter 2. Before they've crossed into the promised land, before they crossed over the, the river Jordan into the promised land, and Joshua sends out two spies in Joshua chapter 2, to go scout out the promised land. And they do that. And he says, in particular, Joshua says, in particular, go scout out Jericho, this fortified city. Tell me what's going on there. Scouts out for all you 19 deltas. That's an army designation for people that want to be infantrymen but can't. I'm sorry, that was dirty. That was dirty. That was dirty and unkind, and I'm sorry. Anyway. He sends the scouts out, and they go, and, they, and they, they come upon this fortified city, Jericho, and they happen upon this woman, Rahab, who's a prostitute, who takes them in. She takes them in. She's a Gentile. She's, she's, she's one of these Canaanites in the land. And she says to these spies, oh, my goodness, I've heard about your God. I heard that he dried up the the waters of the Red Sea, and I heard how he gave you victory over the kings. And, and our hearts melted, and I believe that your God is God. And she hides these spies, and the king of Jericho had heard that there were spies in the land, and he goes to Rahab, or he sends people to Rahab's house, and he says, we heard that there are spies here, and she hides the spies. And she gives them safe passage. And then she in the middle of the night, they leave, they go back, they tell Joshua. Then, of course, the rest of the few chapters happen. And because she hides the spies, 
that becomes decisive, and now God's people are there in Jericho. They know what to do, and we see this victory. And then at the end of Joshua chapter 6, a couple chapters after Rahab hid the spies, uh, they, they, they had said, listen, when we come back and God gives us the victory over the city, this, this, she tied together like a, a scarlet rope outside of her, her window that she let the spies down to, to let them escape in the middle of the night. And the spies said, leave this rope. When the city falls and we see that rope, we see that rope, we'll, we'll, we'll know we'll spare you and you will be with us. And so that happens. And Rahab and her family are rescued because she trusted. She said, no. She's like a, she's like, think about this. She is, she's making it. Moses, Abraham, these fathers of the Jewish nations, these fathers of the faith, these righteous men. And Rahab, a Gentile prostitute, makes it into the chapter and her faith stands right next to the faith of Moses and Abraham because she, like Moses, chose to identify with God rather than this world. And God spared her. She is the most unlikely of candidates, but God did it. How is he using this story in the life of the Hebrews? I think this is written to the person in the Hebrew church in the first century who says, yeah, yeah, the preacher's trying to inspire me today. He's trying to put some steel in my spine. He's trying to tell me that grace is strong and that God will fight for me. But you don't know what I've done, preacher. You don't know what I've done, author of Hebrews. You don't know just how bad my past is. And all of a sudden, out of, the, out of nowhere, in this beautiful blast of grace, the writer of Hebrews brings up this prostitute, this woman of ill repute, a Gentile, who is a picture of saving faith. And God works in her and he says that the reach of God's grace is not too short. He saves anybody, nobody, no matter what. And Rahab is a picture that grace is greater than our sin. And you know what? This is amazing. I don't got time. I got to wrap this. Put your, put your tray tables up. Buckle up. We're landing this thing. You know what happens to Rahab? You know where she comes up again? She comes up again. In Matthew chapter 1, she happens to be the great-grandpa of somebody we like to call King David, who happens to be, or she's the great-grandma, uh, sorry, you guys, you guys got, got scared there for a second. She's, she's, she's in the line of David. She ends up marrying a Jew. She becomes the great-grandmother of David, who becomes the ancestor of Jesus. The most unlikely of candidates stands in this glorious chapter right next to Moses, right next to Abraham, as the great, 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 great grandmother of our Savior and King. Nobody is beyond grace. Hold on to Jesus. Endure as him that you cannot see. Hold on to him. The reward is greater. Trust in Jesus. Do not give up. Say no to the world outside of you. Say yes to the sin that still fights inside of you and hold on to Jesus. 
That's the point of this text. Let me pray. Lord, uh, there may be somebody in this room uh, who is, they, they feel like they're at the banks of the Red Sea and Egyptian armies are chasing them down and they're thinking about giving up, Lord Jesus. But <laughs> would, they, would they, like Moses said, would they, in Exodus 14, would they hear these words that the Lord will fight for you, you have only to be silent. Would they, would they look away from themselves and would they trust in you? Would they trust in you for a greater reward? Would they say no to the fleeting pleasures of sin? Would they say no to Babylon? Would they say no to Egypt? And would they say yes to obedience? Would they endure as seeing him who they cannot see? Lord, on some level, that's all of us at various times in our life. Put this type of faith in us, Lord. I pray. And for my friends who came here who, who don't know you, Lord, would, would they see that the floodwaters of wrath are coming upon them unless they trust in Jesus, that the, the angel, the judgment of your wrath is coming over their household unless the blood Supplied to the heart, and that blood isn't an animal sacrifice. It is Christ on the cross. Their only hope is Jesus. And if there's anybody in this room who it's become clear to them by the Holy Spirit that they haven't been trusting in Jesus through this scripture that they've heard preached, Lord, would they trust in Jesus by faith? By faith, with, with trembling hands and wobbling knees, would they trust in Jesus? Please, that's you, friend. I know you have questions. I know there's other things to say. I know there's a million other things that we need to talk about. But Lord, would you right now turn away from yourself and would you trust in Jesus? Please, please would you consider that? And say, Jesus, come and save me. Save me from your wrath. My only hope is you and he will answer that prayer. He will. And now, Lord, as we see these Two friends be baptized, their testimonies read. Lord, may we revel in the gospel of grace in Jesus' name. Amen.